Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week you can join me in a panic attack. After several weeks of speaking to authors who work on the borders between horror and adjacent genres, in this episode we're plumbing the straight line. The guest is Gemma Files, the book is her new collection, In the Endlessness, Our End, and my stories of it giving me late-night anxiety attacks are very real. Gemma is the multi-award winning author of modern cult classic experimental film, the weird western series Hexslinger, and more hideous short fiction than you can shake a witch's broom at. Oh, and I mean hideous in the best possible way. In that endlessness our end, and it's a title worth repeating, it ranks amongst the most unsettling short fiction I've read, well, ever. The stories prowl along the thin thread between the fantastic and the plausible, and yeah, it led me to throw the book across the room on not one, but two occasions. As you'll hear, the collection was fermented by the real-world horror show of recent years, but it also examines sensory overload, meme culture, Canadian cinema, and addresses Gemma's own experiences of neurodiversity. This chat meanders in all kinds of strange directions, I've found that when you interview Gemma Files, it's best to just ask your questions and then get out of the damn way. Because she knows so much about horror, about what it really is and how it works on the human mind, the, the last thing you need is me cluttering up the conversation. Thanks for everyone who has been so kind about my hosting duties though. That bears saying as I had no idea what I was doing when I set up this show. At the end of the episode I'll be saying a big thank you to the people who have recently reviewed Talking Scared. So, listen out for your name after the interview. But now, we're off to Northern Ontario, where the landscape goes on forever, and the nightmares go further. Let's talk scared. Welcome to Talking Scared, Gemma. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me. It's an absolute pleasure. Where in the world are you speaking to us from? I am calling from Toronto in Canada. You are our second Ontarian in a row. We had Courtney Summers last week and now and now you're here with us for a nice Canadian perspective on horror. Oh, perfect. You've got a new short fiction collection out. It's called In That Endlessness, Our End from Grimscribe Press. That's right. It's a fairly portentous title. It's kind of well matched the tone of the stories. <laughs> now, on this show, we take a broad inclusive view of horror. We've featured thrillers, satire, historical fiction, even non-fiction, but this collection of yours is unambiguously horror. So much so that it genuinely scared the crap out of me, but we'll, we will get into that as the, as the conversation develops. But I usually start off by asking the author to synopsize their book. That's not really possible with a short fiction collection. So instead, I'll ask, how did these stories come together like this? Is there a theme or an organizing principle? Um, I would say that you're right. The organizing principle is fear. And it's interesting because I had written all of these stories before the pandemic over, like, I'd say probably the last five, six years of my career. And uh, I, I think possibly it was you know, Trump got elected uh, and I felt like things were building up. The first story in the book, This Is How It Goes, I described to somebody as a pre-pandemic, pandemic horror story. 
yeah, I, I, I think on some level, I just felt like things were going to get bad and they have, <laughs> uh, and you know, ho- hopefully they're going to get better again, but it's it's difficult sometimes to tell yourself that yeah tell me about it we're in our third lockdown in the uk and and a lot of people are saying this is the toughest one yet because even though we intellectually know that the vaccine is working you know we're we're dealing with it there's still this emotional sense of this may never end that's that's at odds with what we know intellectually it's a strange strange paradox yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's been almost a year, and I basically have been living in a one-bedroom apartment with my husband and my son, who's 16 years old and has, as they say, special needs. <laughs> Distance learning is is difficult for him. I, I I think that that is really what was settling over me: this sense of foreboding and the sense that things had changed. Um, they had reverted to, I mean, I'm, I'm 52 years old. I, I lived through the end of the Cold War. I've seen bad stuff before, but when Trump was elected, I, I really, my first reaction to it was, wait a minute, I thought we were past all this. But yes, the, the idea that somebody who was uh, an open white supremacist could get elected president of the United States. I was sort of like, what the hell is this? Give me liberty. It amazed me. Um, And there were a lot of other things that happened over that time period as well. Most recently, the collapse of Cheezine Publications, which up to then had been my home publisher. Um, And so by the time I was putting the book together, um, it was supposed to be published by Cheezine. And then they had their sort of social media collapse. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I was kind of, you know, in this in this position at the beginning of uh, last year uh, where I was like, I would really like to get this this book published. Um, and thankfully, John Paget at uh, Grimscribe picked it up. There's a lot to talk about there, a lot to unpick. I mean, first of all, you talk about the first story in this collection, how it goes being a pre-pandemic story. It's interesting you say that because when I was reading it with my highlighter in hand, there were several points where I wrote precursor to COVID um, because you do capture that that sense of, of spreading global panic. It's difficult this because I don't want to give too many spoilers for these stories and devalue people you know, reading this for the first time. But we'll talk about a very select few. But this is a story in which people are murdered by their own doubles essentially i think that's probably as, as far as we'll go yeah but even though it's, you know it's a really weird uncanny kind of pandemic it, it it follows the same trajectory with you know the first rumblings on social media and and the viral well the, the word viral having numerous meanings whether it's both either either the disease itself or whether it's the way that information spreads in a infective way yep and I, yeah i thought it was really prescient in the way that you you identified all that a few years before it all kicked off. Yeah, I thought of it as a David Cronenberg kind of scenario, very body horror. <laughs> no, it certainly is that. Yeah, and I've been thinking about for a while the way that, I mean, again, I, I didn't get the internet until I was 25 years old. And so many successive generations of people who I respect 
and work with have um, come of age since then. And many of them cannot remember an age before this networking, before the internet, before you could, you know, say something in Toronto and have somebody in Russia read it. Um, it's, it's fascinating to me. And yet it's very odd at the same time that we live this sort of doubled life, um, almost like we're, uh, yeah, like we're like we're living on two levels at the same time. We're not just experiencing things. We're also thinking about how we're going to comment on those things, almost like the coverage of our own lives, curating our lives <laughs> for uh, a supposed um, audience, uh, which is you know just strange on a multitude of levels. Yeah, it made a lot of sense to me that our first reaction to something like that or something like COVID. Um, would always be to poo-poo it, to deny it, to make memes out of it. Because again, uh, I remember when a friend of mine turned to me when I was like 16 or 15 and said, hey, I hear there's a kind of cancer that only gay people get. And I was like, that's, that's fucking ridiculous. That just sounds like a myth. That sounds like an urban myth. Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned urban myth. You, you're probably best known to a lot of readers from your novel, Experimental Film. Yeah. So what I'm about to talk about happens a lot in that book, but so also ties together these stories. And that's the, the conceit, shall we say, of a character delving into these dark online rabbit holes and online communities and forums and, and finding information that they could really do without seeing or knowing. Is that something that is reflective of your own habits? Um, yeah, I think one, you know, one of my earliest things that I really connected with was the stories of M.R. James. I mean, I'm an autodidact, really kind of self-educated in terms of the stuff that I like and the stuff that I'm interested in. I could definitely see myself being one of those people who spent a lot of time in the library. And indeed, before the internet, I did spend a lot of time in the library <laughs> just tripping over stuff. I remember, for example, picking up a Faber and Faber copy of Crash by J.G. Ballard. And the great part about the Faber and Faber stuff, the yellow backs, is that they literally have nothing on the inside flap to tell you what the book's about and you just take it out and open it up and, and go like, what the hell? <laughs> but yeah, you know, the, the idea of just tripping over stuff and not quite understanding where you're going to end up if you start digging. Um, yeah. I, I think intellectual curiosity um, is one of the most human qualities that we have. But I think it's one of the most dangerous qualities that we have as well. Everything good and everything bad comes out of it. I mean, it's that famous, you know, the, the famous meme, what has been seen cannot be unseen. Yes. It's interesting that you mention M.R. James because I, I talk about M.R. James on this show every other week. And But for those who don't know, he wrote these great stories about these scholars who would go off to far-flung archives and they would find something that they really wish they didn't know um and that led itself directly into lovecraft this wealth of forbidden knowledge that that knowing about can actually harm you yeah it will damage you it will enlarge your um enlarge your perspective in such a in such a way that you'll be completely unable to go back to the person that you were before 
Exactly that, which is is exactly the base of the whole idea of, you know, what has been seen cannot be unseen. And it feels like the internet now, it has this terrifying potential, whether you take it on a on a, a realist level that, you know, you could see some horrible video. When the, there used to be like forums like Rotten.com where you would go on, every 14-year-old boy in the world went on Rotten.com and saw something they really wish they hadn't seen. Oh, yeah. The faces of death of its time. Yeah, but there, there is also... If you're as inclined as I am to, towards these weird thoughts, the idea that you could come across something that is equally odd or weird or Lovecraftian that can can in some way get into your world or get into your mind. And your fiction plays with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is something that we always think of whenever we come across a mirror. And the Internet is definitely a mirror. It's a it's an echo chamber. Absolutely. Um, where people can hear anything that they want to hear but they can also misinterpret what they're hearing so that it becomes the thing that they want to hear. And I think in those first moments where I saw what the internet could be, and this is like over a period of, I don't know, from uh, 1995 to 1999, you know, um, it really, I, I, I do think that I, that I began to see how the internet could become a force for great good and great not good at the same time as we're as we're seeing now you know the we're we're seeing with the the real payoff of uh alt-right rabbit holes and QAnon, and there have always been conspiracy theories but it's fascinating to me that you know we've ended up with um conspiracy theories that people treat like religions well that's exactly it. i mean something like QAnon, which began as you know something we all ridiculed certainly outside the u.s i fully assume i don't have many QAnon listeners because by this point i've put the boot into trump enough <laughs> but QAnon comes along and QAnon kind of sutures together those two aspects of the web that i'm talking about which is that very factual misinformation trending towards I mean, it's on the verge now of the, of, of the supernatural, you know, the QAnon conspiracy. It's pulling in everything. We get devil worship the lot. I mean, it is... Vampirism. It is just such a, a crazy suturing together of both the the mundane and really uncanny extents to which the web can be damaging. Oh, yeah. No, it's absolutely fascinating. I, uh, you know, I, I looked at it for a while and I was like, okay, so essentially you've taken blood libel and the threat of rich people eating your children to keep themselves young and stuck them together like it's, you know, like it's the terror during the French Revolution. It's like, oh, all aristocrats drink children's blood. That's uh, that's the way it goes. I mean, they've been, you know, people have been doing this since the Middle Ages, but never at quite the same volume. Um, what I find fascinating about extreme Trump people is that they will literally boast that they only get their information from the internet because the lamestream media can't be trusted. I have a journalism degree. Uh, I trained as a journalist. You know, I, I went pretty quickly into being a film critic rather than a journalist. But there is one part of me that Every time people start talking about stuff like that, I, I just want to yell, no, 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 there's truth. <laughs> I swear to God, you, you can check facts. <laughs> Things actually do happen. <laughs> but no, 
um, a lot of people would rather have complete lies that they agree with. Yeah, I feel newly optimistic about the state of the world. Even if things don't change right away, I feel like we've got so close to the brink with Trump that for the first time now, we've seen as a society that we will have to do something to mitigate against the potential of the online space for this kind of thing. I feel like it was going to get worse and worse and worse until something took us that close to the brink. And, and now yes. I just I just hope that we get, I hope we get a roaring 20s after COVID and I hope we get a new framework for expertise and truth. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And I'm determined to cling to that. Despite this being a horror-focused show, I'm determined to cling to some vein of optimism. <laughs> but let's get back to your book, because we've wandered a bit away from the stories. I should caveat this entire conversation with, with an, an admission, though. As I said to you before we started this conversation, and I, and I do not say this lightly, your fiction, more often than not, terrifies me. Now, that's a thing that horror interviewers and people who sit at the, at the feet of authors, we, we say that and we pamper. I am being completely and utterly honest. I've never had an author scare me as regularly as you do with your fiction. Now, you can take that as a compliment that I intend it to be. Oh, I do. I do take that as a compliment. I, I spend a lot of time thinking that I'm not particularly scary. <laughs> I don't know whether we have the same mind or the same history or the same whatever, but you have a, you have a knack of finding the exact psychological pressure point, not just that I have, but that I seem to be experiencing at the time of reading your story. And then you press it. And I'll give you two examples. So in this collection alone, there are two stories that I have had to stop reading because I was too unnerved. And one of them genuinely gave me a panic attack. Oh, my God. I woke up from an actual panic attack after reading your story, Come Closer. Oh, my God. <laughs> to the extent that I don't really want to talk about it, because even thinking about it now leaves with that kind of uncomfortable crawling feeling. And, yeah. and the Puppet Motel deals with many, many things. I mean, it's a fun, I, I read it in Ellen Datlow's Echoes, the collection of, of new ghost stories. And I read it at a time that I was experiencing quite a lot of distress over tinnitus which I'd never had before. And I got tinnitus and I'm lying in bed. I thought, right, I'll read a ghost story. That'll take my mind off it. And it opens and the story starts with something like, if you hear the hum, it's already too late. <laughs> but let's let's unpick it a little bit. Let's, let's take that apart. The reason I think that these stories freak me out so much is that you delve into a real multi-sensory experience. A lot of horror writers write about visuals and they write about thoughts. You run the, the entire gamut of sensory experience from sound to touch to well, to everything. Is that an intentional thing? Yes, very much. Very much so. Um, I want you to inhabit the story. You know, I used to be a film critic and movies have always been a big thing for me. And because I'm as old as I am, I sort of came of age as a movie goer by the time I was 11 because I went through puberty very fast um, got my full height and uh, people genuinely didn't know how how old I was and so I ended up seeing a lot of stuff that I probably shouldn't have been able to see and because there were no uh, no VCRs back then 
I would go to movies over and over and over again and um, literally to inhabit them because I enjoyed being in the movies. Yeah, and I, I, I think that has a lot to do with what I with what I try to do with my stories. Although I guess I'm <laughs> try, trying to make you not want to inhabit them. I don't know. Um, but yeah, to feel to, to make you feel like you were there or if I was there, how would I feel? A lot of my stuff starts with uh, a prompt from life. I did at one point manage uh, two Airbnbs for a friend of my husband. Um, and one of them was the puppet motel. I pretty much uh, used every detail of that uh, of that particular Airbnb um, in the puppet motel. Uh, it was that creepy. None of the other stuff happened, but it was a creepy, creepy place. So it's it could be as big as that, or it could be as small as in Always After Three. Um, the thing of the smell that comes in through your through the side of your apartment, and you can never tell where it comes from, and you can never tell you know what it is. Um, that started because there were people who lived in the apartment next to us, either on one side or the other side, who would be constantly. I I, I don't know if you know this about Toronto, but um, we basically legalized cannabis for personal use uh, a while ago. And they would essentially be hot boxing as far as I could tell. And often it would come in through the wall of my son's room. Um, and at the time it was annoying and kind of off-putting. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it could be a great germ for a story. Yeah, never let a shitty experience go to waste. Yes, exactly. You start with something that, that's wrong always, um, when you're writing horror, uh, something has gone wrong. Um, you're in the wrong place. You're doing the wrong thing. You did the wrong thing and you didn't know that you did the wrong thing. Something has started to skew and you're somewhere along that curve from what you consider to be normal to what you consider to be abnormal. The fun is always where you drop in along that curve. Was it never normal? Does normal not exist? You know, is there a possibility of getting back to what you consider normal, um, or is normal just an illusion that you that you've had all your life, or a, almost like a leap of faith, I suppose? You know, that you could be uh, disabused of somehow. In a couple of these stories, you actually actively confront that idea by by saying either I'm going to tell you something which will forever change your life. <laughs> in come close to the story that gave me the panic. Um, and it, it did that, by the way, because the final image is just so horrifying. That The, the final idea of what happens is just so horrifying to me. Um, but you also start Thank that you. story by saying, you know, you take the wrong path and you don't even know you've taken it until you're too far down it to come back. Yes, yeah. And, and that is in itself is a really creepy idea, an inherently frightening way of thinking about the world, that there are, are you can take the wrong turn before you know you have. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's also something that we know from our childhood. It is the undertone of almost every fairy tale. One of my favorite uh, grim fairy tales is uh, a very short one called Mrs. Gertrude. I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people haven't. So basically, it's like once there was a young girl who was always doing what she shouldn't, 
what can be done with such a child? She went to her parents at one point and said, I've heard a lot about Mrs. Gertrude. I think I'm going to go visit her. And her parents say, no, 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 Mrs. Gertrude is not someone you should ever visit. And she's like, no, I think I'm going to do it. So she, so she goes off through the, through the woods to Mrs. Gertrude's house, um, sees a bunch of weird people, and gets to Mrs. Gertrude's house and says, hi, Mrs. Gertrude, I've come to visit you. And uh, Mrs. Gertrude says, oh, well, come in. Um, you look a little out of breath, as though you saw something frightening. What did you see? And uh, she's like, well, first I saw a man dressed all in green. And Mrs. Gertrude goes, oh, that was my hunter. You know, first I, and then I saw a man dressed all in red. Oh, that was my butcher. And then I saw a man dressed all in black. Oh, that was my secret follower. Then she says, but you know, I'm, I'm very glad that you came because I needed somebody to brighten up my house for me. And um, then she turns the little girl into a block of wood and throws her on the fire. And she sits next to the fire and says, hmm, now it's nice and bright. That escalates quickly. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. And there's a there's a line that I actually skipped over, which is one of my favorite favorite lines in literature, which is now you have seen the witch in her true ornament. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. One of the reasons I like Mrs. Gertrude is because it's like you take every fairy tale and you kind of squish it into one. And the whole point is that uh, there's a there's a black exploitation film from the from the uh, early to mid 1990s in which Bill Duke walks into a um, uh, a police interrogation room at one point, sits down next to our hero and says, you know, you fucked up, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sums up all your fiction, pretty much. Yes, because I know I did. Um, you know, I, I think I think a lot of it comes out of, you know, my, my son has autism. Uh, and the more that I took my journey with him, the more I realized that in looking at uh, a checklist of symptoms of Asperger's syndrome, I recognized myself when I was, say, eight to 12 and which was you know pretty much the worst time in my life um if they'd been looking for asperger's in girls or indeed asperger's at all uh, i might have gotten a diagnosis but that mm. never happened so uh, a lot of my life has been kind of feeling like there's something wrong with me um i don't feel that anymore i know who i am i know what i'm capable of and i can deal with myself but yeah, I spent a lot of my formative years just sort of going, whatever uh, your first impulse, whatever you you know you you first want to say or whatever you first want to do, don't do that. It's it's always a bad idea. Do you want feel like your experience that may tie into the whole sensory nature of your work? Because my understanding of certain kinds of Asperger's and autistic spectrum disorder, and forgive me if I'm wrong about this, is that sensory experience can be really heightened and can be quite overwhelming. And that's how your yes. work feels like you build this, you build this tapestry of sensory, well, I keep using the phrase experience, which then becomes like claustrophobic and overwhelming to both the protagonist and the reader. Yeah, absolutely. It just impinges on you until you are stuck in a moment that you can't get out of as the old song goes. Absolutely. It's, yeah. like, it's, it's like you write out a panic attack. 
you know, because I mean, I've, I've already made reference to this. I mean, I, you know, I for years I've had um, a kind of free floating anxiety disorder, which I'm now thankfully on top of, but it still pokes its head above the parapet from time to time. Definitely. And the way you write is like writing a panic attack, or as someone I knew once referred to it as a head full of broken biscuits. Those thoughts yes. that you cannot put together to make a whole. That's how your stories. That's the crescendo they build to. Yeah, I, you know, I agree. Um, I now know that the same way that my son has a lot of anxiety, um, which is difficult to see because his various stims, um, his various repetitive motions and, you know, his habit of talking at echolalia and stuff like that. Um, a lot of it kind of is to cover up that anxiety uh, when things get overwhelming, uh, as they often do. Looking back on my life, I I realized that I used to think that I was just a really angry person because often that was my that was where things would go. Yeah, it was it was kind of like my first um, reaction to most things. And then later, as I got older, I realized that so much of that was fear. You know, it's not so much that I hate other people. It's that I was afraid of other people. Other people were just really hard work, <laughs> um, just really hard work because you're always uh, you're always watching and you're always trying to decode social cues that you don't really get, um, and you're always trying to figure out if there's some subtext to what people are saying to you. So that that transition, which um, eventually led to thankfully me also getting onto anti-anxiety medication, uh, was very much the recognition that it wasn't anger and hatred it was fear and um fear and hurt you know and that there was a possibility of being kind not just to other people but to myself as well yes it's a wonderfully freeing thing when you realize that things are to put in a certain way just anxiety yes because i i spent years worrying about the nature of my thoughts and you know oh why am i thinking this and like i'd watch a horror film and part of me would think so I, so I would watch a horror film and then I would worry that the horror film might be real. And then I would worry that I was going mad because only a mad person would think that the horror film might be real. And then blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, after years of dealing with this, now I just go, yeah, it's just anxiety. It's what's supposed to happen when, we, when you watch a horror film. You know, but it takes a long time to get to the ability to just be able to say, yeah, that's just anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. And the interesting thing for me is that horror is my comfort food, um, which is, again, one of the reasons that sometimes I'm like, I don't know, is this, is this frightening? It's, it's hard for me to tell. You know, I often have a sense that, um, that the story is right, uh, that it's the way that it should be, uh, almost, like, mm, almost like poetry. If, if you take it apart, it's, it's like a butterfly that won't fly anymore. But man, it's beautiful when you see it. You know, even just looking at it, you're like, yeah, that is exactly the way that it should be. I was interviewing Wes Craven once and I said, why do you think people like horror? And he said, because horror has rules. You know, in real life, terrible things happen all the time to nearly everybody. And they always come almost without warning. But horror has rules. It has tropes. It has um, it has a pattern. And in a lot of ways... Uh, if you feel like your life is a bit of a horror film, seeing an actual horror film can be very comforting. 
it can be very calming. You're like, oh, yes, yes, this is the way. Um, there's, there's a wonderful line in, uh, um, I think, uh, Dan Cummings' new film, uh, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, um, where he plays uh, Jim Cummings. Yeah, sorry, that's my husband, um, where he plays an extremely alcoholic. And I personally think a guy who also has probably drinks because he has ADHD and nobody's ever figured that out, including him. But uh, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a sheriff's deputy in a really tiny little town where uh, some horrible werewolf-like murders are, are happening. And uh, he, he's, he's standing up at an, an AA meeting at one point and he says, yeah, I remember the first time I took a drink of beer and I turned to the person next to me and I said, oh, this must be how normal people feel all the time. <laughs> yeah and um so it's a bit like that for me uh horror is a bit like that for me well me too yeah i mean I, it's, it's been a bit of a running theme in this this podcast that every time i speak to a horror writer and i say how are you coping with the pandemic they're always like yeah i'm fine i saw this coming mm. it feels like we, we are kind of geared up a little bit to deal like readers and fans of horror are, are geared up a little bit to deal with this because yeah we've seen this play out and we know the rules and the only time it gets really frightening is when it starts to exceed the rules. Yes. Yeah. And also the stuff that you don't see coming. You don't necessarily see boredom coming. No. You don't necessarily see um, wanting to sleep all the time coming. You don't necessarily see being so hyper aware that you can't focus on the things that you enjoy coming. <laughs> it's sort of like an eternal snow day, right? <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it yeah that is a great canadian metaphor of what we're going through <laughs> yeah and and it doesn't even snow that much in toronto but yeah you know it's like yeah back to your story so i've already, I've already said at the start of this interview that i don't want to give away too much because i want people to read this and not have it all spoiled for them i'm going to focus the conversation on two stories that really stood out to me as my favorite go for it i, I enjoyed them but they didn't give me a panic attack which is a nice middle ground to be in one question is about inspiration and background. The other is about craft, because I'm fascinated. It's a really trite question to say to an author, where do you get your ideas? Right. But when I'm reading stories of yours, like like there's a story called Cuckoo, or there's a story called Bulb, and I can see how, or I can imagine a situation in which you had an experience which led to an idea, and you're going, mm, that what if, and then you get that story. I, I can see, I can trace that in my mind. But then there's a story in this book called Look Up, in which, how can I put this in the briefest way possible? It's about a, a young woman and her family going back to their ancestral home in the north of Canada to meet their extended family, which are a Latvian tribe who are haunted by this thousand year old descendant who still picks them off from the air like a huge demon bat dragon. <laughs> right? Yes, basically, yes. How do you get to a story like that? Does it come fully formed? Does it start with like one little bit of the idea and you build the rest? I, c I just cannot imagine how you get to a story like that. Explain it to me. Okay. Um, yes, it started with fragmentary things that I've always been interested in. And some of them were very specific. Um, for example, the Yellow Fairy book, which was compiled by Andrew Lang. Um, there is a story called The Wizard King, 
Um, it's not a very good story. I looked it up again uh, after years and years of sort of vaguely remembering it. But it's about a king who's a wizard, strangely, also at one point transforms himself into a dragon and uh, carries off a princess with whom he is enamored. This was very hot stuff when I was five. I remembered it as being considerably more interesting than it actually turned out to be because in a lot of ways it reminded me in retrospect of a Tanith Lee story. Uh, One of the people that I stumbled on when I was in my teens who really inspired me was Tanith Lee and particularly her her Tales of the Flat Earth. Uh, So there was this this trace of Night's Master, I guess, of Azrarn, uh, the Lord of Darkness, in the interest that I had in the Wizard King as, as an idea. And then I got asked for a story the way that often I, I do get asked for stories, thankfully. Um, that's where I am in my career right now, which is wonderful. And I thought, well, if I was to do something with this fragment, what would I do with it? At that point, I started to do a bunch of different things. And the first one was that I began to write from the point of view of the creature, of um, the king. So uh, I assembled a lot of his sort of backstory and I assembled a lot of his interior monologue fairly quickly. Um, Then I started uh, thinking about who would be my main character because you you can't really be inside the king forever. It's sort of like going... Yeah, yeah, my main character is going to be Loki, <laughs> you know, my, the, the god, not the Marvel character, you know, <laughs> my, my main character is going to be, um, you know, Hades. <laughs> you really need a person that you can see things through. One of the things that keep, comes up with me a lot and worked its way into uh, my novel and stories um, Uh, we will all go down together, is that half of my family, um, the the extremely Canadian half of my family, as opposed to the Australian half of my family, are people that I almost never see, but they're kind of amazingly odd and larger than life. In the the stories that made up um, We Will All Go Down Together, they became fairies, essentially. (laughs) Uh, But but in real life, they're just these people who are very, they tend to be beautiful and talented and interesting, um, but also really, uh, a lot of them have um, drinking problems and stuff like that. And they're just a little too much to be around all the time. Twice I've gone to family reunions with these people. And it's, it's always like the little people uh, like me and my mom and my and one of my cousins sitting in the corner watching these tall, handsome people do the Macarena and get really drunk. So that's where that began. The other part, a most recent heir to this bloodline who um, has never met these people before for reasons, um, and she will go up to this family reunion and where they're going to spring this crazy this crazy backstory on her and eventually the king will show up and that's that's literally how it happened that's um you know i i I went and did a bunch of uh research about you know where where am i gonna what's what's the smallest place that i can put this former kingdom in and um you know what's what's an interesting part of europe 
okay, Latvia, yeah, all right, so what are some Latvian words, blah, 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 stuff like that. And other than that, it just kind of came up out of a bunch of disparate stuff that I that I stuck together. That's what I do. Even though you've explained all of that to me and it, it makes sense, I couldn't tie it together into a cohesive narrative, I don't think. I need a, a clean idea. That happens, that happens at the end. Like So when when you're able to just bring these disparate things together into this really weird story. That, that just that impresses me. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I was very happy with it once it was done. Um, I genuinely didn't know whether it was going to work or not because it is made of such disparate stuff. And also because, you know, like I said, these are interests that I've had since I was a really little kid. And in a way, thinking about um, a, a king who's a god, who's a you know, who's a monster, who's, you know, who's Dracula, basically, going back like a thousand years or something like that. Adding all the other stuff is just making it real. Speaking about being interested in things, that brings me to the other story I want to discuss. Cut Frame strays very close to the subject that fascinates me, so much so that the book I'm trying to write at the minute has some similar themes. Um, and that is the idea of succubi and, and old hag syndrome and night terrors and stuff like that. Yes. Everyone always says, you know, write what scares you. And, and my thing is I have I have sort of some slight anxieties around sleep um, and confusion when waking. So I thought, right, OK, we'll write a story about that. And and years ago, I got fascinated by this, this old hag syndrome that occurs around the world where people, you know, they wake up to report an old lady sitting on their chest, essentially. Yes, I, I had that once when I was in Australia. The last time that I visited um, my father on my own, I was about 14. Um, my dad, for some reason, decided that we were going to meet in Sydney, even though he lives in Melbourne, or lived in Melbourne at the time. And uh, so we were going to stay in Sydney for a little while in a apartment that uh, a friend of his had given him for like a uh, half a week or something like that. Uh, his significant other, she had gone there first and looked around and gone, oh, uh, this woman has all these statues and pieces of uh, pieces of statuary um, from Hawaii and other places like that. You know, most of them are things like gigantic sharks with teeth made out of, out of shell, eating a dude, you know, um, they're, they're kind of creepy. So let's put them all in a room and then let's get Gemma to, to sleep in that room. <laughs> so yeah, at, at one point I, I woke up in the middle of the night, um, surrounded by these things. And, uh, I, I was having a, a night hag episode. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was, in full sleep paralysis, I could feel that something was pressing down on my chest. You know, there was this weird sort of black thing that uh, I, I, I guess was just a hallucination, but I couldn't move. I was pinned, just lying there going, ah! you know, attempting to scream and it totally not working. With, with Mrs. Gertrude sat on your chest. Yeah, basically. I had an episode of sleep paralysis once and it was a completely benign experience. I, I woke up face down on the bed about 4am and I felt someone, and I say someone because I could feel a human body, crawl onto my back, put their arms around me under my chest and hug tight. 
And then yeah. after a few minutes, I could move again. And But it was a weirdly peaceful. There was no fear involved. There was nothing involved. But the old hag syndrome is fascinating because it happens across all cultures, which I always find mm-hmm. really interesting because if something isn't culturally informed, then what's going on? either in the metaphysics or in in our brain in something that is atavistic and primal i find that fascinating but your story cut frame takes all of that mythology and really concisely smashes it into a a story that is pretty much about a found footage piece of film i yeah. uh, i really liked it that was my, probably my favorite story in the collection oh thank you i did that for ellen datlow uh i knew that she was going to ask me to do something film-based and whenever I do that I I really want to deliver. A while ago I had had the idea of doing something set during uh, the the tax sheltered era here in in Canada which was a a fascinating time where um, (laughs) the government decided that the best way to uh, get people to make movies that were uh, sort of vaguely competitive in a Hollywood sense, uh, like on a global scale, would be to um, offer them uh, a 100% return on investment in Canadian film. Uh, strangely enough, people started using this as a tax shelter. Yeah, there were a lot, of, uh, a lot of films made during that time period. Some of them were really, really good. It's because of the tax shelter era that David Cronenberg made his first films. And people used to joke that this is, this is where dentists hid their money. Um, so that's how I started out. I was like, okay, so uh, the main character is going to be a dentist. <laughs> one, of the, one of the guys who uh, does amazingly weird semi-experimental films on a regular basis here in, here in Canada is Guy Madden, who's a filmmaker out of Winnipeg. And um, a film that he made about 10 years ago, uh, possibly a little bit more than 10 years ago, um, was called My Winnipeg. Oh, yeah, I know My Winnipeg. Yeah. So uh, I was interested in the fact that he cast Anne Savage to play his mom. Anne Savage is probably most known, if she's known at all, for being the femme fatale in a noir uh, called Detour which is quite an amazing piece of work. Um, I know she's done other stuff, but that's definitely where I know her from. And that got me thinking about film noir in general. And I liked the idea of a former film noir star who had never been as successful as she perhaps could have been. And it wasn't necessarily because she allied herself with the wrong filmmakers or anything like that. But it was because uh, when you got her in front of a camera, something happened. And yeah, so that's that's how that came together. Was that in Final Cuts by Ellen Datlow? It was. Yeah, I own that and haven't yet read that collection. Yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of fiction about films. Like I've read Experimental Film, House of Leaves, Night Film by Marisa Pestle. I love stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Um, you've read uh, Ramsey Campbell's Ancient Origins, right? No, this is my admission that Ramsey's going to come on the show later in the year, um, sometime around June. And I, I haven't read anywhere near enough Ramsey Campbell. To say I'm a horror fanatic who lives in the northwest of England, I haven't read anywhere near enough. So that's my summer project is to get up to speed on Ramsey. I think you'll really like Ancient Origins. That was that was a huge um, influence on me. Yeah, as, as much uh, an influence as, say... Uh, 
Caitlin Kernan's The Drowning Girl in terms of doing a, a sort of fake memoir very much informed by my life. Getting towards the end of this interview, because we've we've talked for a while now, I, I do have a question to ask you, which is probably a little bit unfair, because I'm going to basically make you the spokesperson for all Canadian literature for a brief moment. So bear with me. I read a lot of North American fiction, probably more than I do British fiction, which is why I've read enough Ramsey Campbell. Um, and increasingly, I'm seeing two trends. One, very Canadian fiction. Or alternatively, Canadian fiction, which is completely eliding its own identity and may <laughs> as well just be New England fiction or Chicago fiction or Great Lakes fiction. You know what I mean? I, mm. there's, there's, there's a strain of Canadian fiction which is really emptying itself out of any local identifier or cultural identifier. Your fiction really doesn't do that. Toronto and Ontario is very present in your stories. I'm asking Margaret Atwood to move on for a second and I'm making you the person to go to. What do okay. you think makes horror uniquely Canadian? Um, there's a fascinating spread of Canadian horror. It's a small community and if you write horror in Canada, you tend to know each other. But when I think about, you know, say like the difference between someone like Ian Rogers, someone like Simon Stranzis and someone like Richard Gavin, these are, these are three guys who literally uh, used to hang around so much that they were called the three Canadians uh, when they go down to the States and, you know, do various conventions. And all three of them are interested in the dark. But uh, Simon's stuff is very Ligotian, I'd say, philosophically uh, oriented. And uh, Ian's stuff is far more informed by things like Twin Peaks, the, uh, you know, the, the Blair Witch Project. Um, he really likes to, um, you know, take one from column A, one, one from column B, and then mess them around until they're not quite that thing anymore, um, which is another thing I like to do. And then there's Richard Gavin. And Richard is, Richard is like the Arthur Machen of, uh, of Ontario horror writers. Um, in that, there is an episode of Hermetics where he talks about his actual occult practices. Um, and he's written like three separate books about um, systems of symbolism, that uh, of occult symbolism that he's interested in and the, and the stuff that he does with it. But he also just writes these incredibly weird horrifying horror stories they're the kind of horror stories where you just get dropped in at the deep end and you pop out again and you're like what was that oh my god it's like stumbling on the willows uh or better yet the white people um and without any kind of context you're just like where did this come from he gets better and better and better in fact all three of them do and I think the thing that links all three of them is a lack of ego. That sounds, that sounds stupid. It sounds like I'm boasting. But uh, yeah, it's like, we're so unegotistical in Canada. But, you know, it's, the story is more important than how clever you are. So basically, you, the answer to my question about what, what makes something uniquely Canadian, like everything else, is that you're just nicer. Yeah, that's it. Um, you know, we're not nice. That's the funny part. There's a there's a big streak of flinty coldness that goes through the heart of Canadians. And it's not so much nice. It's polite, but it's not that nice. That's why the British get on with you so well, because we're not nice either. We have we have manners, not kindness. 
Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly it. And yeah, and well, the and Americans Canada, are very kind, but not mannered. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is absolutely true as well. Um, yeah, and in Canada, it's sort of like you know, there's there's this great uh, classic uh, Alice Munro collection called "Who Do You Think You Are," <laughs> and I always think that's the most Canadian thing that I can possibly yeah. think of. You know, who do you think you are? I'm glad you mentioned Alice Munro because the reason I asked that question about um, what makes something either Canadian or Altarian horror is because when I was studying for all my stuff, I was looking at different definitions of gothic. Cause that's what my focus was on. And I came across this classification. It's the most obnoxious subgenre of all time. <laughs> Southern Ontario Gothic. And I'm like, you you don't get to take something that niche and call it a thing. <laughs> and then it was people like Timothy Finley, Margaret Atwood, Alice Munro, all people who dabble in the gothic. Margaret Atwood is gothic, but the rest dabble in the gothic. But it's a stretch. It's a tenuous link to call those writers in any way authentically gothic. And then to have the temerity to say, well, we're Southern Ontario gothic. I was like, no, I'm not having this. So I will take your definition of a more broader pan-Canadian gothic a bit more kindly. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that, you know, there is a lot of gothic in Canada. That idea that Margaret Atwood had of we know we're not supposed to be here, you know, and because we're colonizers, um, we're all from somewhere else, except for the people who aren't from somewhere else. And those people you never see. Those people don't get uh, to talk about uh, about Canada, except thankfully they are getting to talk about Canada more. Um, there's a, a big streak of indigenous fantasy, which is coming up from behind. And um and a lot of that is is very horror horror oriented as well. Um, you know, uh, in Blood Quantum, a uh, recent amazing zombie film in which uh, only indigenous people can be bitten by zombies and not become zombies, you see this wonderful sense that they've already lived through an apocalypse. You know, it's like they know what it's like to have everything shaken and taken away from you. Um, so really, they are the best qualified to survive something like that. That's great. Yeah, I, I'd seen that film, but not thought about it in those terms. Yeah. And that's, you know, the, uh, if, if you're honest, as a Canadian, you have to think about things that way. You have to go, well, the fact is that none of this is, quote, quote, mine. You know, I may have been here my entire life and I may, you know, when I think about somebody walking down a street it's me walking down a street in toronto and when i think about a creepy town it's a creepy town in northern ontario some place that i've driven through or been driven through because i can't drive but none of this is quote quote mine i am not supposed to be here well that's a great place to finish all i have left to do is ask you my four questions that i ask each week if that's okay sure it's a nice little bit of coherence across all these different conversations. Absolutely. The first question, and I think this is going to be a good one because you mentioned your early years watching films. What was your gateway to horror? Hmm. Um, I was the kind of kid who would be frightened by anything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Um, I could get frightened by a uh, Boris Karloff's ghost stories comic book 
I could get frightened by um, tripping across the end of um, Wuthering Heights on TV. So I, I would have to say that probably my gateway into horror was um, seeing a James Herbert novel, um, The Survivor, on a rack at the local grocery store and reading the back of it, you know, being absolutely horror struck. I didn't even read the book. I, I just read the back and made up something in my head that was I later found out far worse than anything that was actually in the book. That's an interesting answer, because I have a similar parallel to that in that, obviously, it's very difficult for me to pin down where I first, you know, experienced horror. But the thing that always comes to mind is when I was eight on holiday with my mum and dad, I was in Greece, I remember. It's a really vivid memory, which is why I think it's possibly quite primal. Um, and me and my dad were walking back from the beach. And I don't know why, but he was he was explaining the plot of Stephen King's Carrie to me, well, of the film version. Oh, wow. And just like you, it caught my imagination in a way that potentially seeing the film at that young age wouldn't have done, because the horror would have probably shut me down. But by allowing me to think about it and, and fill in the gaps, yeah, that's what I remember being just immensely curious about what this this story was. And then I yeah. went away and you know read everything the man ever wrote. So, yeah, I think sometimes that being allowed to use your own imagination with a horror, horrible image or a story or a fairy tale, they are, they're more powerful moments than seeing Freddy Krueger for, for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, uh, well, you know, I, I was talking about the internet as a mirror, but horror is also a mirror. And, you know, so you meet, you meet horror halfway and for it to work, you have to cooperate with it and you have to be its partner. Well, Speaking of that, actually, if you could recommend one book to our listeners, what would it be and why? Okay. Um, I would probably recommend The Elementals by Malcolm McDowell. I mean, it's a beautifully written book. Uh, all Michael McDowell's books are beautifully written. Um, I'm really glad that now that Valancourt has been um, reissuing them, that more people are being exposed to his work. Uh, because I think most people just know him as the screenwriter of Beetlejuice, but he was in fact a, an amazing novelist. The Elementals is a Southern Gothic. Um, it has a beautifully specific sense of place. It has a type of haunted house that I have really never seen before or since. It has a sense of doomed familial history which you never really learn that much about. And one, one of the things that I love about it is that obviously there is a terrible backstory to everything that's happening in the book, but you never really get to hear it because nobody remembers it anymore. You know, it's all the stuff we didn't talk about and then now all the protagonists are dead. <laughs> so you're just left with some weird daguerreotypes and. Um, you know, two houses, you know, three houses, two of which are filling with sand on a tidal island. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's just a, a beautiful little thing. Well, thanks for that, because that's a nice new recommendation that a lot of people have said quite, you know, 
repetitive book. So a lot of people said The Shining, stuff like that. So it's nice to have something new thrown in the mix. And I haven't read it myself. It's on my Kindle, and I have Valancourt's beautiful edition of the Blackwater Omnibus. Yes. On my my bookshelf. Haven't read either yet. I need to find time, but I'll make a an exception and get straight to the elementals at some point. Question three. If you could give one piece of advice to a fledgling horror author, what would it be? Um, the the piece of advice uh, is the piece of advice that I would give to any kind of writer, but basically don't be afraid to write badly uh, because you can fix bad writing. You can't fix no writing. For a similar reason, don't throw out stuff that you are not satisfied with. Keep it um, because everything becomes useful eventually. It may just become useful as a piece of grit from which you grow a completely different pearl. Some of it you could have made something better out of. Okay, that's that's great. I, I like to think that someone somewhere in a room like myself is listening to this week on week and every week it keeps them going on their novel. And my final question, and this should be a good one because we've covered a lot of stuff in in, in this chat, but what truly scares you? Well, you know, at the back of every fear is the fear of death. You'll pass through a field and go to a place that no one returns from. Um, and you don't know what that's going to be at all. You have no idea what that's going to entail. You know, and the best thing that you can think maybe is, well, you just won't care because you'll be dead. <laughs> you'll be gone. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's that's really bad. Maybe it's because I have a a version of neuroatypicality, and um, autism, after all, means self to be uh, concentrated on oneself or alone with oneself or whatever. Um, but the idea of completely losing myself is is really difficult for me. I know it's going to happen, but it's really difficult, and that's the thing that's in the back of everything. Well, there we go. In that endlessness, our end. I mean, we've come beautifully full circle. I I really do recommend everyone read this book. It's out from Grimscribe Press, the 10th of Feb. Keep your eyes on this one, guys. It managed to give a, a, a hardened old cynic like me a panic attack. So if that isn't the blurb you need to inspire to buy, I don't know what will work. <laughs> Where can people find you? online uh i'm spending a dumb amount of time on facebook as gemma files strangely um twitter at gemma files um i am on dream with under handful underscore of dust um telling you far more than you want to know about my life and uh i'm in the process of trying to update my pro site which is called music at midnight well, all that's left to say is, Gemma Files, thank you for talking scared. Thank you. Have you ever had a book truly scare you? I mean, scare you enough that you can't stop thinking about it, that in some way, no matter how good it was, a part of you wishes you hadn't read it. That's how I feel about In the Endlessness, Our End. 
and those two stories in particular, The Puppet Motel and Come Closer. Now, I'm not saying it will be that way for everyone. No book is. I'm not saying it will necessarily scare you. I've shrugged up plenty of stuff that others find terrifying. But I would say there's a real chance you could read this book and find a seam of fear that stays with you. If you're a casual horror reader, or if you hate horror, and you're being forced to listen to this by someone else, then you may think, why on earth would I want to frighten myself like that? But those of us who know, we know. And Gemma's stuff is the good stuff. Oh, and if you are being forced against your will to listen to me, then do seek help, because no one needs that. But going back to fear and nightmares, I made reference in that conversation to night terrors and old hag syndrome. It's the backdrop to the novel I'm trying to write or trying to carve out of the mountain or whatever. It's, it's hard writing a novel, it turns out. Firstly, for those of you who may have already got entirely sick of my wittering on about my own writing, I do apologise. It just comes up a lot because I'm talking to writers and we're in lockdown and it's pretty much all I'm doing with my time. But if the mention of old hags and succubi has tickled your interest, then I'd highly recommend looking into the subject further. Interesting fact, the word haggard, meaning as we use it, to look sick and tired, actually comes from the phenomenon of being hag-ridden. The word nightmare is equally derived from the same kind of thing, a Middle English phrase meaning to be ridden by the mare or incubus. It all ties into theories of sleep paralysis and the idea that we are visited by evil spirits in the night who want to take our spirit or our essence. It can get pretty dark and sexual, to be honest. But it's a fascinating subject, more so because people all over the world report similar things. An old lady sitting on their chest, screaming into their face when they wake, unable to move. And if if that's not enough for you, then shadow people make the occasional appearance too. There's this guy called the Hat Man who people see, again, all over the world, just a shadowy outline wearing a fedora hat. It's creepy, right? If you're interested, then maybe check out the 2015 documentary The Nightmare by Rodney Asher. It's an examination of the phenomenon of sleep paralysis and night terrors, and it goes into all this stuff that I've alluded to. It's as frightening as any fictional film you can see. Be warned, though, one of the central premises is that the phenomenon is in some way contagious. And to tie back into mine and Gemma's conversation, what is seen cannot be unseen. <laughs> Insert evil laugh here. We talked about a lot of books in this episode. Too many to go into here, really, but I've included a list in the show notes, especially those Canadian horror authors that Gemma mentioned, as they may not be so well known. Check it out and maybe find some new people to read. If you want to discuss any of this, then obviously get in touch. Twitter, as ever, is TalkScaredPod, and the show email is TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Again, I'm getting more and more frequent emails, and I absolutely love it. I love knowing the people, the real people out there who are listening to me when I'm creating this late at night in my little back bedroom. So yeah, do get in touch. I've got to say, as I mentioned at the start of the show, reviews are coming in a bit more healthily now. And I would like to say a big thank you to the, the most recent tranche of people who, who reviewed the show. They all gave five stars. Thanks very much. 
So thank you to David H. Rogers, to The Ghost of Bath, to S.E. Perez, to M.G.O.U. 71, to Hartichoke, that's Hartichoke where the, the O is a zero, and a special thanks to Just Emily C. Can you get in touch and tell me what show you heard Talking Scare mentioned on? I'm really interested to know. Please do keep the reviews coming. They are the lifeblood of the show, especially until someone decides to sponsor me. Um, I will read out and thank everyone who reviews. That's a promise. And I'll be back next week for another fantastic Women in Horror episode as February rolls to its end. Until then, it's hot milk before bed. Remember at all times where your light switch is and ignore that tall, thin shadow in the corner of your room. It's not looking at you, I promise. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.